Welcome to the Goal In Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Bruss, and I'm proud to be bringing you these stories of commitment and success from everyday heroes right here in Sydney, Australia. Today on the show, our guest is Daniel Tolson. Now, all of us, we all have an internal voice inside our head. Sometimes it's a devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, especially when we're torn about a decision on what to do. Now, who hasn't felt that before, right? I think maybe I've been listening to the devil a little too much in my life. Other times, your internal voice is a very, very harsh critic. And at times, it might be the harshest of all critics. And often, that internal voice will tell you that you're just not worthy or you're not good enough to do whatever it is that you're trying to do. Our guest today is Australia's number one business coach, and he's worked with more than 3,500 companies and individuals to help them break through those unconscious and conscious biases that people have. In the process, he helps people to redefine themselves from the inside out, and the results that he achieves are nothing short of absolutely incredible. There are many ways that you could measure the success of what Daniel does. One way to measure it is that he creates double-digit bumps in sales numbers, and he couples that with a new and much deeper understanding of one's inner self. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the way to experience personal growth and personal development. Double your sales numbers and feel good at the same time. Who wouldn't want that? As you'll hear, Daniel is an expert in social and emotional intelligence. He's written and produced more than 250 audio and video learning programs, including Total Emotional Mastery, The Business Breakthrough, and Business Growth Strategies, which have influenced business owners all around the world. Daniel delivers more value than you could hope for in this podcast, so get your pen and paper ready and make sure you come on back and listen to this show more than one time to get its full effect because it is absolutely epic. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Daniel Tolson. Well, good day, Daniel. Welcome to the Go All In podcast. It's great to have you here, mate. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here, mate. All right, I'm really excited about this one. We've got Australia's number one business coach. But before we talk about any of that stuff and get into any of this crazy go all in mindset stuff, I want to get to know you a little bit. And I just want to start off by asking whereabouts are you from? Because you're an Aussie, but you're displaced as an expat. Well, in a country that I don't know anyone else is from there. Well, uh, today I'm in Taiwan, uh, which is just uh, off the Chinese coast. It's below Japan and above the Philippines. And uh, tonight I'll be back in Sydney. So I've come home for a week, uh, for a four-week stint in Sydney. And I'll be coming back to Sydney to do the hustle tonight. And, and Taiwan is home for you, right? Taiwan is home. I moved to Dubai in 2007. I stayed there till 2012. My wife fell pregnant. We moved to Taiwan and uh, we loved the food. We loved the lifestyle. So we decided to stay. Nice. So how long's the flight between there and Sydney? Tonight, if there's a, a tailwind, eight hours. If there's a headwind, it'll be 10 hours. So it's pretty close. The average Aussie drives about eight hours a week. So uh, why not fly? It's not too bad, <laughs> is it? It's, it's actually pretty reasonable. You go direct or you go via Singapore or something? Uh, I'll always go direct. So China Airlines, straight out of Sydney, 10.30 p.m. flight out of Sydney. Uh, lands in Taiwan at about 4.30 a.m. Very nice. Very nice. And so you're a business coach. What were you doing before before you're doing what you are now. What's your background? Have, have you got a corporate background? Have you got a trade? What, what's your background? Well, uh, I was in porn. 
for 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> Not the type of porn you're thinking, Mr. and Mrs. Listener. Behave. <laughs> and, uh, we had a family pawnbroking business. So we had uh, 17 years experience in pawnbroking. My brother and I uh, developed a clothing brand. Uh, it was international. It was called Liquid Militia. We spent a decade there. Uh, and I also led a team of 17,000 cabin crew for Emirates Airline which is the last formal corporate job that I had before I um, commenced my business coaching business. So uh, So it always makes people's ears prick up. (laughs) I love it. That's an interesting mixed background because people are usually from one side of the fence or the other, but you've got the the small business and the business background, but you've also got the corporate background as well. So you get a nice eclectic mix of things that are going on in there. Did that kind of set you up nicely for the role that you're in now? Absolutely. If we go back further, my father was a farmer. He grew citrus and potatoes. My grandfather grew watermelons and mushrooms. And my mum was a hairdresser. My grandfather was in the Air Force. But they're all entrepreneurs. So having that entrepreneurial blood in me and then moving into corporate enabled me to see both worlds totally different and also experience the stress of working in corporate in comparison to coming to the freedom of having your own business. So over the years, it's created a very unique mix of business coaching because I can see it from a very global perspective. I've encountered a lot of business coaches in the last couple of months in in the business that I run in my podcast booking agency. And some people have a really broad range of experience. And it's really interesting because some folks have got a really, really narrow focus and they just hone right in on that one little niche in the market. It kind of eliminates like big market for them, but they're really, really good at what they do. And and I sort of like, I look at my background, it's impossible not to compare yourself when you talk to people, right? And I see that I've got a broad eclectic mix as well. It's, it's really cool. When did the coaching journey start for you? Was it recently? Coaching for me started uh, back in 1996. I was an Australian champion wakeboarder in 2006 after being on the water for 22 years. But I was very good coach. And I remember there was an article written in Australian Water Skis magazine. And it was an interview of me and my brother. And they asked me what my brother's strengths were. And they asked my brother what my strengths were. And his response was, he is a great coach. Mm. So I was coaching people older than me, younger than me back in 1996, people who went on to becoming world champions. And what I was able to do, Rob, was I was able to look at a trick and break it down into small bite-sized chunks and then being able to feed it back to the rider. People who are much better riders than me, but they didn't know how to do the tricks. Or I could break it down in my head, and I've been doing that since 1996. And then Jack and Dion Ellison, they had a show called The Greatest Show on H2O. They used to do events down in Darling Harbour. They brought me in to coach their clients on how to wakeboard and how to water ski. So since 1996, I've been coaching. That sounds like you've been part of that community, that wakeboarding community since it really started, right? Huge. My dad was a champion barefoot water skier, so it was already in the bloodline. We were out on the river as young as we could be. So by the time I'd become Australian champion, I think it was like I'd been on the water for 22 years. Wow, very long time, very long time. For the international people that are listening in, that's kind of a normal thing for an Aussie. We live on an island for heaven's sake and we do grow up by the water. I grew up slightly differently, but also in the water. My dad was a mad keen swimmer. He was always part of a swimming club. So we used to go and do that. And I got really good at swimming at school and whatnot. And I think I was about 13, we went up to the Great Barrier Reef and I went on my first scuba dive and mm. I fell in love with that event. And ever since, ever since I was 13, between the ages of 13 and about 16, I was diving every moment that I could, nighttime, daytime with people, 
scabbing lifts, scabbing money to go and get cylinders filled up and whatnot. And I found myself in the Navy and wanting to be a diver in the Navy. And I was lucky enough to go and do, do that as well. So it's pretty normal. For, and now I live I'm like where I'm sitting. I'm like 100 meters away from the water <laughs> at the beach. It's a really cool Aussie story. I love to share that with the international listeners because I know that a lot of people are like, hey, send me some more photos of where you live in Cronulla because it's a really beautiful place where I am and always making them a little bit jealous like that. But that's what Aussies do. Right? It's kind of cool. <laughs> and, and, and scab is such an Aussie word as well. <laughs> yeah, it is, right? <laughs> now, you don't get to hear that slang much because of where you are. I've been for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. Well, Daniel, thanks for sharing that with us here on the front of the podcast, letting us get to know you a little bit. People come on over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in. So if you could, mate, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Well, for me, the biggest Go All In story is the ability to overcome a lot of uh, mental blocks that I had when I was younger. I remember going to school, I felt the same as everybody else, but I just seemed to be so much slower than everybody else. And it came to second and third class. And I remember I'd look at the board and I'd see all these words and then I'd start writing something else in my textbooks. And the teacher would keep asking me, is everything okay? Well, I thought I was okay. I saw words on the board and I saw words on my book, but none of them connected. And I'd learned that I had this learning disability called linear sequential learning disability. And basically I couldn't learn in a linear way. And what I saw was something totally different to what resembled in my mind and what resembled on the paper. So by the age 11, I started to learn that I had some other physical disabilities. I had curved spine, my hips were out, I would be running a bit like Forrest Gump and my legs would just collapse. And I started to realize that there was something wrong with me. I started to lose my vision and I was always just in pain. And eventually at age 11, my body just collapsed. And that's when I had to go all in. I realized that there was something wrong with my body, the pressure from my neck, which was twisted, pressure on the cranium, uh, platelets in the head were pushing down the brain. And I was creating these problems uh, cognitively. I couldn't think properly. So I had to go all in and I had to play catch up. I had glasses that were thick. I was in what was called the space lab at school. And I was just behind. All the other kids were so much further ahead than me and I couldn't catch up. I had to learn how to read again. I had to learn how to write again. I had a visual, very good visual memory, which we all do, but I'd visually remember mistakes. Mm. So I could repeat to you the perfect mistake a hundred times. <laughs> and it didn't matter how many times you told me it was wrong, I'd just keep repeating the same mistakes. So I was a straight uh, C, D, and E student. The teachers told me that I was a good student only if I applied myself. So I, was, I just was convinced that I must have been stupid. And I remember that I was pretty stupid at age 11 because it was too much. I, I felt guilt. My parents were constantly taking me to therapy. Mum would have to leave work early. I'd, I'd go into a room and I'd sit and watch a ball fly around the room. I'd go to these other therapy places and I would just draw a figure eight on a giant butcher piece of paper. And I'd sit in a room just doing that. And that was rewiring the brain. And it was costing the family a lot of money. And I thought, you know what, maybe I am stupid. Maybe I've just got to call it quits. So after school one day, I walked out to the side of the street and I said, this is over. Um, I'm going to go all in and I'm throwing myself under a car. Gosh. And so I just launched myself out in front of the next car that came along. I think the teachers were right, Rob, I was stupid. I, I did it at a zebra crossing <laughs> where the car stopped. <laughs> but they were right about one thing. And that's when I realized I just had to play catch up. 
through school, I was always kicked out of the classes because I was using colour pens. I was creative. I used colour and the teachers didn't like it. So they kicked me out. I couldn't learn like everybody else. And what I learned was that I was told I had learning disabilities, but I soon figured out that the teachers had teaching disabilities. They couldn't teach me how to learn. Mm. So through high school, I was just kicked out of the classes and by age 17, all the stress built up and I developed chronic fatigue and Epstein-Barr virus. And I got so sick that I just could not go back to school. So I did year 10, started year 11. That was it. I was out of school and never went back. Mm. So from then, that was just the start of the journey. I had to, over the next 11 years, learn how to learn. And it wasn't until I was 28 that I actually finally figured out how I learn. And once I got to 28, my world turned around because I realized that I was actually very intelligent. I had an IQ in, I think, in the top 5% of the population, but because I didn't know how to learn and recall information, I couldn't access all that knowledge. And as soon as I learned how to learn, the following few years, I read more than a thousand books and I started to love it because I learned how to learn. So for me, it's all in just about learning. That's really, for me, where it's really kicked off. It's a very heartfelt story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I would echo what you said there about teachers not knowing how to teach you. That happens. I had the very, same very experience with my daughter just last week. She came home and she threw her hands up, gave me a report. She's last in the class for mathematics. And I got a school book out and I said, show me what you're working on. Sat her down with a YouTube, in one three-minute YouTube video and about 20 minutes of pulling apart the problem that she was working on of all things, parallel lines, it was relatively straightforward. And just somebody explaining it to her clearly on YouTube and her stopping and rewinding and going back and forth. After 20 minutes of it, she had it and she nailed all the problems, answered all the questions. And I said, see, there's nothing wrong with you. There's absolutely nothing wrong with you. You're just as smart as everybody else. It's just the way that they're communicating the message to you is not getting through to you. Did any of the teachers at all recognize that they weren't getting through to you? Or were they just saying it was your fault? I was reading the reports just last week in Sydney and it was all about me. It mm. was Daniel's got the problem. He doesn't pay attention. If he paid attention, he'd be a good student. But there was nothing about, there was no report on the teacher about their, learn, their teaching ability. It was all about, <laughs> I just felt stupid and my parents were paying tens of thousands of dollars a year for private education. Mm. They would ring my mum up all the time. The senior master would ring up, Mrs. Tolson, this is the senior master of boys. We have a problem. And she said, is it with my son again? Yes, you need to come down to the school. And so I was always kicked out, but the problem was always me. Were you a naughty kid? Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I was a very keen student. I wanted to learn, mm. but because I would always get things wrong, I was probably a frustration for the teachers. They always said he was a very pleasant person. And when you read through the reports, it shows that I'm very emotionally intelligent, but I didn't have that IQ that they were looking for at a grammar school. There, there was no focus on sports. Hey, I was an Australian champion athlete and they wouldn't even care about developing that. You know, I'd been selling newspapers since age nine, but they didn't measure your ability to sell or to have confidence or interact. It was all about just the test, just the test results. Really interesting as I see my children going through the school system now, my eldest son, Cameron, he's left high school. He's at university now. So he's kind of in that system over there doing what he has to do. But as my son Travis is in year 11 here in Australia, and as he's moving through that school system, you see the pressure kind of mounting up and the workload 
comes to him thick and fast, particularly in the subject of mathematics. You know, he's doing four units of mass. It's a lot of work and it just keeps coming at him thick and fast. And he either assimilates it or the curriculum just marches on, whether or not he assimilates it. And it's, you know, I think that's a real kind of failure of what you're teaching a child and how you're teaching them to be in the world. It's not like the curriculum of life just marches on and you can't, you just get left behind. You've got to go with it. You've got to stay with it. You've got to be with it. You've got to be present with it. You've got to make it happen like that. I think it's so unbelievably important. It kind of brings me to the the next point I wanted to ask you about, which is you're an expert on emotional and social intelligence. And maybe you can just give us some context and tell us a little bit about your business and, and how you help people and how you help companies and then pull on that thread of emotional and social intelligence for me. Because I think that is one of the things that should be taught at school and it's not. And I'm just like, I'm baffled. I'm baffled why it's not part of our society and I'm baffled. Well, it's good for your business. It's good for what you do, but I'm baffled, but it's not part of what we do. It's got to be there. As a business coach, I provide my clients with business growth strategies and it's to help them increase their sales. And we will see companies increase their sales by 250% inside of 12 months. Wow. I was working with Salmat Australia and by applying emotional and social intelligence techniques into their business, they grew their revenue streams by 75% in 60 days. Huge. It's massive. And emotional intelligence is your ability to understand why you think and feel the way that you do. So there's five key pillars. The first key is self-awareness. And this is understanding what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, Mm. what your weaknesses are. That's the first place you got to start. The second place is self-regulation. And this is the ability to manage your thoughts and your feelings. And through the various studies over the past, you know, 20 and 30 years, we've learned that our thoughts predict 95% of our feelings. So if you have self-awareness and you understand how you think, and then you've got great self-regulation, you can capture those thoughts before they turn into fears of rejection, fears of criticism, fear of loss, fear of the unknown. And that's what emotional intelligence gives you. It also looks at motivation. And everybody in business is motivated. And we know that because you'd be stupid to get into business if you weren't motivated. (laughs) But motivation in this context, think of it like a boxer. It's the ability to take the hits. It's the ability to get knocked down and get up more times than you get knocked down. And what we find in business is a lot of people get knocked down and they never get back up. So that's the first three pillars. When we talk about social intelligence, these are the final two pillars of emotional intelligence, and that's empathy. It's looking at the other person and understanding why they think and feel the way that they do. And if you've got very high levels of emotional intelligence, you'll be able to read the emotional makeup of somebody else. And this is the heart of selling. It's understanding how that person thinks and feels. The final part of social intelligence is your social skills. This is the ability to communicate your message. This is the ability to convey the benefits, the results, and the improvement of your service. And all of that makes emotional intelligence. And emotional intelligence, the latest research shows that it equates to about 58% of your success in business and in your personal life. And as our clients grow, we talk to them about 1% strategies. And I think all Aussies, all Aussie business owners, or serious professionals need to know that For every 1% improvement in emotional intelligence, you'll see a corresponding increase in the salary of about $1,750. And we know this globally. If you have a higher level of emotional intelligence, 
than somebody else in the same field. On average, you'll earn $37,500 more per year. <laughs> it's interesting when you can tie it back to a revenue model of some sort, right? It's the only thing that you can tie back into revenue. Yeah. Grow your emotional intelligence, your income will follow immediately. And, and it happens straight away because you're at 100% control of your emotional intelligence. You don't have to worry. You don't need government legislation to improve it. The police can't take it away from you and the government can't tax you on it because it's yours. You got it for life. Beautifully, beautifully said. As you kind of set the frame there for me, I, want to, I just want to back up on the timeline there for a sec. After you left school and you struggled with your learning at school, did you have, you know, when people have things that are wrong with them that are not functioning quite right, if you didn't have a right hand, then you'd be very skilled with your left hand, even though you're not a Southport, you'd be good at that. Your body compensates for those things. With your learning disabilities and the, and the difficulty that you faced as a young kid, did that translate into anything else? Did that translate into emotional intelligence, the ability to sell when you left, because you kind of gave up on school, trying to move on from there? What did you do when you first left school? The first thing I had to do was I had to overcompensate with action. Mm. And although I wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, I could outwork everybody else because I was just prepared to work harder. And, and that's also an inborn attribute. And an inborn attribute is something that is in my blood. My father's a farmer. Mm. And you get up, before the sun, and you only come home when the job's done. Yeah. So I would out-succeed people by sheer levels of action. Mm. And then what happened was I had some very good mentors. And these mentors, I think they were just a little bit like me. They were street smart, and they were very good with people, and they learned by demonstration. So my uncle, he took me under his wing and brought me into real estate and he, uh, he gave me a book by Brian Tracy. And on the inside cover, he said, to Danny boy, this is your blueprint of success. And he just demonstrated and showed me what I had to do. Mm. And I started to feel smart because I thought, this is really easy to learn this stuff. But I learned it because he showed me and then I acted on it immediately. So I overcompensated with action, but I found people who could teach me experientially. And that was the defining moment. And what happened was, in my first six months of real estate, my uncle gave me a blueprint for success. He said, if you do these actions in this order and sequence, you'll be in the top 10% of people in Australia. I followed it. I took too much action and I ended up in the top 1%. And by 19 and a half, and remember the teachers told me I was stupid. I dropped out of school, finished business college because I got, uh, had a couple of knee reconstructions. But six months into real estate, I was in the top 1% and I bought my first home at 19 and a half. <laughs> is that because you didn't know any better or is that because you were overcompensating? Because I was stupid. <laughs> but yeah. what I know now is it's not stupid. It's actually what's called being literal. Mm. I'm a very literal person. If somebody says, walk over the door and knock on it, I'll do it. <laughs> but if they suggest something to me, I won't follow through on the suggestion. If they said, don't you think it'd be a good idea to knock on the door? I'd say... I don't know. But if you told me to do it, I'll do it. So a very literal thing. And I think what happens with intelligence IQ, people are too smart for their own good. They are so intelligent. I remember hearing a story recently, a friend of mine, she could uh, read it two and a half thousand words per minute. Mm. And she had a 95% retention rate of all that information, yet she couldn't apply it. She was too smart IQ for her own good. And the EQ was too low. So coming back to the question was, I had to develop my emotional intelligence. I knew who I was. I knew what my weaknesses were. I had doubts about myself, but I took so much action 
that those doubts couldn't turn into fears. And because my motivation was high, because I was so far behind everybody else, I just took so much action that I stopped looking and comparing myself to others. And then because I was in front of people, empathy, I just started to read people. I was street smart. I'd come from the porn industry to a street smart. And then I could also, I had confidence and wit and charm and I could make recommendations to people. I didn't sell to them. I just made recommendations. This is your situation. This looks like it's how it's hurting you. And if you do this, it'll help you and you'll feel really good. And people would say, well, that sounds good to me. The <laughs> question is, well, when can we begin? That's, that's how literal I was. When can we begin? Does now sound like a good time? And away you go. Then off you go. And what about your uncle? What was he doing? Was he just watching from the sidelines, cheering you on? Or was he saying, go far? Was he, was he pushing you? My first job was as a paper boy. And he gave me the three-step sales plan. <laughs> Daniel, your age, I was nine, by the way. He says, here's your new, newspapers. There's the door. Go make sales. <laughs> and that was- <laughs> Come, come back with an empty barrow. <laughs> but 10 years later, he had refined and he had learned from the best. And he took me under his wing. But- like a mentor, he didn't walk the path for me. He stayed next to me and he showed me what I did right. And he showed me where I was going wrong and gave me ideas on how to improve my performance. He gave me regular feedback, but he also went out to listing presentations in real estate and he said, this is what worked. This is what didn't work. This is what you're going to do next time. And I would learn immediately. I'd go into another presentation. I'd make the $7,000 sale and walk out. Very so nice. he was always there next to me. Very nice, very nice. And what did you learn about yourself as your confidence started to build? Because it seems like school and your adolescence was really, really tough. And some kids have it tough for various different reasons. And you had it tough for the reasons that you explained. But as you get into the workforce and you start to get a bit of momentum behind you, get a bit of cash behind you, you buy a house for heaven's sake. That's, that's a pretty remarkable achievement for a young man. Yeah. And, and then you go do it again two years later, yeah. <laughs> you buy your second one. Well, I think for me, what happens is when you start comparing yourself to other people, your self-esteem, your self-worth drops down. It does. So yeah. I had to overcompensate with action. And, and the problem is you start to feel superior. And I felt superior to my teachers because I was earning probably double what they were and they just told me I was stupid. Mm. So in some ways, what happened was I wanted to prove them wrong and I wanted to stick it up. And, but mm. then you wake up and you realize that Nobody even cares. Nobody's even watching. They're getting on with their lives. What they said to you, they don't even remember. So I exhausted myself trying to prove to other people that I was superior and I could do it. And I learned one day that nobody's watching and you should only do something for yourself. So I really had to reset and I did have to remove a lot of my limiting beliefs. And when you have a lot of limiting beliefs about people's opinions towards you, you actually don't like yourself. So for a long time, I didn't like who I was. So I remember at 22, I gave away my real estate career and I went traveling. I went traveling for nine months and it was just soul searching. Who am I and what do I want in my life? And I'd succeeded and I knew if I did that, I could do something else. But I didn't know what that other thing was. And through, so through travel and living and working in Europe and America, I come back to the decision that my next goal was to become an Australian champion wakeboarder at all costs. So mm. I had to get through that self-worth and had to start to increase that level of self-belief. And I realized that one of the reasons why I wasn't an Australian champion at that stage is I didn't feel worthy of that success. 
because I had so much trouble in the past and then I got so much success so fast that I thought, can I replicate it? Do I deserve it? Do I need it? Will people like me? So I had to go through all those mental and emotional blockages. And this happens as you raise the bar, you have to face different styles of fear. It can be the same fear, but at a different level. Mm. This is self-concept psychology. And I had to change my self-concept. I had to change the way I think and feel about myself. I had to change my self-ideal. Who do I want to become? What does that person look like? I had to change my self-image. I had to get rid of those things that I didn't like about myself. And that all came from increasing the level of self-esteem and self-worth. It's such an unbelievably important explanation. Thank you so much for sharing that with the audience, by the way. It's the, well, it's not an easy thing to say, but it's something that people say often and, and sometimes they can't take it back when they're going to go all in on something. It means you're totally committed. You're totally, you know, when you say that, people that are hearing it intuitively know what you mean. They know that you're going to commit. They know that you're going to go for it. And one of the things that I've written here as a, a question is, when you, go, when you decide to go all in on something and you announce it to the world, then suddenly you're accountable to the people that are around you. And it's like you have a bit of imposter syndrome, maybe sneaking in and things go wrong. And there's a little bit of fear and trepidation that happens there. But when you peel back the layers of that onion, what happens is you end up being really overly critical of yourself. And I think we're all intuitively like that. That's just part of the human experience. That's what it is. I know that I'm my worst critic. Sometimes I do a podcast like this. I feel like I'm shouting down an empty hallway, just talking to the guests that I'm with. And I'm like, I finish it all. I produce it all, get it all out there and go, gosh, it could have been, I should have asked him that, or I should have said this, or I should have said that to that lady. Or I'm always really critical of myself, trying to beat my best and trying to outperform myself every single time. But the reality is pretty damn good. The feedback I get is like really solid and people love what I'm doing. And they're like, nah, Rob, it's great. It's great. What is the inner critic? Why is the inner critic so damn harsh to us, to you, to yourself? It's a lovely question. And it's about expectations. And there's four levels of expectations that we have throughout our lifetime. The first expectation is, or from our parents. As we grow up, our parents put certain expectations on us. The problem with a lot of parents is that their emotional intelligence isn't very high. Because, you know, we're just coming into this part of the worldly experience where we're learning about it. So our parents say to us, you know what, just go to school, keep your head down, stay out of trouble and just get a job. And that's the only expectation they have of this. So what happens is we will live up to or down to our parents' expectations. And if your parents have an incredibly high expectation, too high, what will happen is you'll never meet that expectation and you'll always feel that you're not good enough. If your parents have a very low level of expectation of you, you'll meet that and you'll never stretch beyond it. Because what happens is for males, for example, if your father earns $100,000 a year, internally, our barometer is set to $100,000. And if we start to earn more than our father, we start to feel shame and guilt. And we think, should I actually do this? Is that right for me as a son to out-earn my father? Mm. So we will adjust our expectations based on our parents. According to the studies in USA, 95% of the prisoners in the prison system were told by their parents that one day you'll end up in prison. And they lived up to that expectation (laughs) or down to it. So that's the first one. The second expectation is the expectation of the teacher. Now, my teachers had a very low expectation of me. They said, Daniel, you know, you're never going to succeed. You'll never do any good with your life. 
And we've got to remember that teachers are lovely. They're very passionate about what they do, but a lot of them don't have worldly experience. They've stayed in school their whole life. So they don't know what it's like to stretch. They don't know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. They don't know what it's like to face success and failure and all the things that come along with running a business. So they just say, look, just get your good grades, get into the high school that you want, get into the university and just get a job and stick to it for 20 years and get your long service. So that's the second expectation. And remember that the teacher can't have a higher expectation for you than they have of themselves. I can't give you a hundred bucks if I don't have a hundred bucks in my wallet. If I've got 10, I can give you 10. That's it. Mm. The third expectation is the expectation of the first boss. And most of our bosses have a very low level of expectations for our first career. You know, we're doing a part-time job, they're self-employed, and they don't ever expect that you're going to do really good. So they don't train you. And I want people to know that if you're working for somebody and they don't invest in you, they don't believe in your potential. So you've got to go find somebody else who's willing to invest in you. You know, you've served in the military. They invest in you because they believe in you. And if they didn't believe in you, they wouldn't hire you. Mm. And you're expected to achieve. And you're expected. You're told to serve. And the fourth level of expectation is the expectation you have on yourself. So what we've got here is four expectations. And you should always have a very high expectation on yourself, but not so high that it sets you up for failure. You have to incrementally increase the bar. So if it's your first podcast here, the expectation should be very low, Mm. but then you should only ever stretch it by 1%. But because we have aspiration factor and you've got kids, you measure them up against the kitchen wall and they stand on the tippy's toes and say, you know, I'm five foot six. And you say, come on, put your heels down. You're only five foot four. We always feel that we can go so much further. And when we don't get there, we feel disappointed. And it's because we've fallen short of those expectations. So we have to set realistic expectations, all things considered. Like you said before, if somebody's missing a left arm, you've got to face the reality that it's a reality. You don't have a left arm. You can box with one and you're a great boxer for one, but don't expect you up against Muhammad Ali or you will set yourself up for failure and disappointment. Mm. And that's the expectations theory that we're going to remember at any given time. Yeah, that, again, again, beautifully said. There's just value bomb after value bomb. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really, really appreciate that. One of the things that just on the, in the same vein as children, because I know there's a lot of parents that communicate with me about this podcast, and I think they kind of connect a little bit with my military style, not my militant style, <laughs> although it can be quite militant as the platoon sergeant sometimes is, the style of things that I've got going on. And One thing that I recognized that happened as a parent recently was, I think I mentioned to you before that emotional and social intelligence is not taught in school. And I don't think it's something that I feel like I'm pretty emotionally intelligent and socially intelligent and I can tick a lot of boxes and whatnot. But I I think I've got quite a different mindset to most people. I'm kind of like the go all in guy. So my mindset's got to be a little bit different. And and it is, I know it is because I know when I go outside at 4.30 in the morning, there's no one else around. And I know that when I'm out training at the gym at 11.30 at night, there's no one else around. My mindset's just different to other people. And that's because of what I'm doing. And I recently come across a guy who I actually interviewed on this podcast. His name's Brian Kane, and he does all the, the mindset coaching for athletes. He does a lot of athlete stuff. And I downloaded and I listened to his audio book. It's called The 12 Pillars of Success. And I listened to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that was really cool. And like most audio books that you listen to, you kind of listen to it and you put it aside and you go, oh, what's the next book I'm going to listen to? You know, you don't do anything with it. And I stopped myself and I said, what if I sat down 
every day for 12 days with my daughter and did one of those things every single day. And if you listen to this audio book and you hear what's in this book, you'd go, oh yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you've heard it all before, right? You've heard most of it before. He's just kind of packaged it in a way that's really easy to understand and it's really easy to deliver. But as I was sitting there with my daughter, it's kind of life coaching as you know, the, the t- pillar number one is an elite mindset. Here's how an elite person thinks. Here's how an average person thinks. And it's in the context of sport, right? That's what he is as a sports coach. And I'm saying these things to my daughter, expecting her to know. And she's like, never heard these things before. And she's 12 years old. And I'm like, I'm installing this elite mindset in her mind, you know, and pillar number two is the MVP. And pillar number three is time is ticking. Pillar number four, five, six, seven, eight, and that's 11, 12. And, you know, installing this in a young plastic mind like that is such a empowering thing to do as a parent. And Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get rid of all of the bias that I have as her dad. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to impart any of the bias to her as a child. And I think that's pretty emotionally intelligent to be able to recognize to do that. That's what I mean. And it seems to be working because she, I'd done some stuff and she's like, Hey dad, that's, you know, you said summer bodies are made in winter. What are you doing eating those Tim Tams type thing? You know, <laughs> that's not an elite mindset, dad. You know, she's checking me. She's like my accountability buddy that lives here. I'm like, damn it. I just wanted to have a Tim Tam slammer with my coffee for heaven's sake. It's kind of funny. What could you say to some parents listening about their kids and installing a, a mindset like that about emotional and social intelligence? You can't give what you don't have. And you can't expect to raise emotionally intelligent children if you haven't applied the principles to your own life. And children, they're bullshit detector. <laughs> it, operates 20, it operates 24-7. And they know when you tell them something that you don't apply in your own life, they look at you and you lose points. <laughs> yeah. So they know. So there's four Ds to success. And I think if parents can implement these four Ds in their own lives, because the child looks up to you and the child goes through three development periods. First of all is the imprint period, where everything that parent thinks and feels, the child experiences and does themselves. That's the imprint. It's like a piece of dough and you're the cookie cutter. The second stage, which goes from age 7 to 14, is the modelling phase. And this is where kids do exactly what their parents do. Not what they say, (laughs) what they do. My daughter, she's coming into it now. She's six and a half. I'm shaving in the shower. What's she doing? She's got the (laughs) shaving foam all over her face and she's shaving. She's out there putting my wife's makeup on. And then we come into the socialisation period. And you want to make sure that they've implemented all these Ds before they get to that socialisation period. Because what happens, Rob, we're dad and our daughters look up to us as the most important man in their life. Mm. And once they get into that imprint period, all of a sudden we're replaced by a young fella, smoking cigarettes, drinking alcohol, covering tattoos, driving fast cars. And all of a sudden dad's not cool anymore and dad has no influence. So if we're thinking long-term here, we're going to implant this in their mind. So let me give you the formula. There's four Ds of success. And I think they're the four Ds of go all in. First of all, you have to have desire. You have to have desire. You have to know what you want and you've got to go all in. The second thing is, is you've got to make a decision. And what we know psychologically is if you have a plan B and you can, if you think about that plan B for as little as 10 minutes, that's enough to sabotage your entire success. Mm -hmm. So the first D is desire. You have to want it. You have to want to bleed for it. You've got to get up at 4.30 in the morning. 
and freeze for it. <laughs> you got to make the decision. And the only way that you truly get what you want is if you make the decision to go all in. So you've got to make the decision and there is no plan B. You've then got to have discipline. And this is what you would have picked up in your years in the military. It's discipline. It's doing what has to be done, whether you like it or not. When it hurts, you've got to keep doing it. And then the final D, the fourth D is determination. And once you start, you can't stop. And you have to go through all the ups and all the downs. You have to go through all the wins and the short-term setbacks. And if you've got enough determination to see it through to the end, you'll be a big success. So the four Ds, one is desire. Mum and dad, you've got to have desire for your career or for your business. You've got to make the decision. That's all you're going to do for the rest of your life or until you achieve that goal. You then have to have the discipline to do what is hard. And if you do what is hard, life will be easy. But if you do what is easy, life will be hard. And remember, your children are watching. If you do what's easy, they're going to do the same thing. If you do what is hard, they'll have that desire and the discipline to do it. And then fourthly, you've got to have the determination. You've got to go all in and you do not stop. Even if it hurts, even if you spend all of your money, even if you lose your house, you've got to keep going until you get what you want. Mm -hmm. And if you instill that into your children, you will have emotionally intelligent children and they will be resilient. All the other kids will fall down and cry and they'll be wrapped up in cotton wool. Your kids will hit pavers, they'll bust their chins open and they'll get up and they'll get back on the bike. And that's what you need. Beautifully articulated and perfectly said there. It's, it's very hard to do those things as a parent because your kids are always watching, always watching, and you forget that they're watching and it's easy for you to slip because there's no such thing as a perfect person. Of course, my daughter, I just want to kind of pull on this child thread here a little bit with you because the emotional intelligence stuff I think is so important to install into children and there's just so many parents that listen to this podcast. My daughter said to me, hey, dad, can I come up the park and go jogging with you? And I was like, hell yeah, of course you can. Get your shoes, let's get going. Come on, you know, like you're talking to an infantry guy. Of course I want to go running. We get running and, you know, in her mind, she wants to do it. And in my mind, I'm like, don't make this like awful for her because she won't want to do it again. Just go easy. Remember, she's only 12 years old. Just take it gentle, like maybe make it a bit fun type thing. Anyway, we start off jogging and she was complaining a lot. She was complaining a real lot. And it's hard. Running's hard. If you don't run much, it's very hard. It's hard on your body. It's hard on your heart and lugs, it's difficult. And I was kind of happy it was so hard for her. Life is just so easy in the modern world here in Australia. You know, kid has everything she wants and we were doing something hard that was stretching her. And I was like, come on, let's go a little bit faster, you know? And she's like complaining and complaining. And there's only so much complaining one dad can take, of course. And after, I think it must've been the second or third lap, we must've been a click or two into it, just around the park. And uh, I said, look, you know, You've got to get hold of yourself, you've got to get hold of your emotions and you've got to stop complaining. And I know it's hard. I know it's difficult, but you've just got to look inside of yourself and find that inside of yourself. And it's so interesting to see a little human being that I love mm -hmm. so much trying to find that inside of herself. And, you know, she had a real, real tough time of it. And she complained even more, actually, because it was getting harder because the workout's getting longer. We got in the car and I thought, well, that wasn't really very successful, Dad. You know, you didn't do a really... I debriefed myself for about 20 seconds. And then she got <laughs> in the car and I thought she's never going to come and go jogging with me ever again. And, and surprisingly, she said, next time when I go, I'm going to concentrate on not complaining so much. I said, well, next time we go, it won't hurt so much because 
you're going to get a little bit fitter every time, just that one or 2% more every time. And if, if you improve by 1% every day, if we go for 300 days in a row, you'll be 300% better than when you started. And you'll be sprinting around this park before you know it. Your fitness will improve, be like that. You just see it happening in her little mind. And it was just turning over and it was happening like that for her. But, you know, it was hard. It was so hard for me not to impart that unconscious bias of the, the infantry guy going, just shut up, come on, hurry up. You know, what are you complaining about? Get going, hurry up sort of thing. You know, because that's what happens when you're doing physical training in the army. That's kind of what it's like. And I was a physical training instructor. Um, mm-hmm. So... Yeah, it's a really, really interesting thing to see. What I would add to your to your four Ds there for the for the listeners there is to create a I create a little creed with my daughter. We we've got three things that we live by. Actually, we just introduced a fourth one just this week, in fact. And the three things are you always tell the truth. You never, ever, never, never, never under any circumstance ever tell a lie. And you help others and you do the right thing. And the fourth one that we introduced was you do what you say you're going to do. And she was having a real hard time at school in primary school. She's in high school now. She's getting bullied and things weren't right. And I had to figure out a way to help her get over those things and help her to understand why she was feeling like she was. And I said to her, if one of those three things is not quite right, when somebody's talking to you, meaning they're not telling the truth or they're not trying to, they're not helping you or doing the right thing, that's when you're going to start feeling off. And that's when your emotions are going to take over and they're going to make you feel the way that you're feeling. And it's really interesting to see her as she's developing and maturing that that has just built so much resilience in her. And then now we've added that fourth one because, you know, clean up your room. All right, dad, I'll clean up. Take the dishes out of your room. Yeah, all right, dad. And it's like, now we've got to introduce the fourth one. And now number four, pillar number four, come on, come on, little lady, let's go. Working it, an absolute treat. Do you have any little little parenting ones like that that you do? I think the most important thing that we're going to be aware of is we're going to teach our children the difference between the emotions and what they mean. Mm. So I was working with a, a gold medal athlete and the gold medal athlete did not know the difference between anxiety and excitement. Mm-hmm. And in her mind, she had reframed anxiety into excitement. But the problem is if you say, if it's an apple, but you say it's an orange, you're still eating the, the, an apple. Mm. <laughs> It doesn't matter what you do, it's still an apple. And what happened was because of her inability to identify the difference between the emotions, she couldn't regulate it. So as parents, there's five major emotions. There's anger, but there's actually 12 subsets of anger. There's 12 different types of anger. Mm. So when the children are angry, we have to help them understand what they're feeling. And what happens is with anger, the body wants to get rid of it. So you'll see the children stamping their feet and slamming their hands. Mm you encourage your children to do is to stomp your feet to go punch the punching bag to go kick the ball because it gets the energy out of the body Mm. sadness is a very depressive feeling and their energy lowers so what you got to do here is you got to teach them what you're feeling now is sadness my grandmother just passed away and my daughter was very close to her and she didn't want to cry and i said sweetheart it's okay to feel sad Mm. and want to cry, let it out because your body's going to release all that acid, all the toxins out of the body. As the tears come out, it's getting the sadness out of the body. It's okay to cry. And she's like, I don't want to cry. I said, baby, it's okay. It's because you love her that you feel sad because you won't get to see her again. And so she released that. And we're going to teach our children, not what we learned, you know, a real man doesn't cry, stiff upper lip. That's, that's bull crap. 
Mm. It, we're natural. It's human. We're going to release it. It's natural. After that, we have fear. So we have fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of criticism, fear of success, fear of the unknown, all these fears. And when we feel them, we're going to get the children to understand that there's only one thing to cure fear is to go and do the thing that you fear until the fear disappears. So we're going to encourage them and we're going to do it with them. Then we have hurt. So when you get hit by a fist, it hurts your body. When you get hit with an emotional torment, like a word getting called names, called fat, called skinny, this hurts the physical body. It actually hurts the body and we feel it. So I've got to teach the children that if you have certain pains in the body, this can be connected emotionally. You know, if you have a, if you have a feeling down the front of your body and the front of your body hurts and you've got fear, the fear of failure is felt down the front of the body. The fear of rejection is felt down the back of the body. And then the fourth one, the fifth one is guilt. And we're going to be very careful as parents not to project guilt onto our children mm. because guilt, what we now know and your, your children, everybody here's a child, by the way, the, the emotion of guilt, if it's left unresolved in the body, it ends up leading to cancer. So absolutely, absolutely. The gift of life is that we can make sure our children are free of anger, sadness, fear, hurt, and guilt. And especially guilt because it lowers your healing energy and it leads to cancer. And we're going to be very mindful of these emotions, but get our children to become aware of them. And there's one thing, and it's called the Hawthorne effect. I just want you to remember that word, the Hawthorne effect. Just by becoming aware of an emotion that you're feeling is enough to dissolve the emotion immediately. That's it. You don't need therapy. What are you feeling? Anger. Oh, okay. What are you feeling? Sadness. Okay, I get it now. Mm. The emotion does its thing and it's released out of the body. Mm, beautifully said. Beautifully said. I think a lot of what we're talking about here, you can encapsulate into a word. Maybe it's not the right word. Maybe it has not the right context or connotation. And it, it's actually one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I call it, I would call this, all of this that we're talking about leadership, because it's about leadership of yourself and leadership of yourself. You can't lead anybody else or do anything or function as a human being in this society, unless you've got a hold of yourself emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, and all of those things. And this is about leadership. Can you, can you offer a comment on that for us? Well, the only the only word that I'd put in front of leadership is the word personal. It's oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. the ability to be a leader in your own life. And once you can lead yourself, then you move on to strategic and high-performance leadership, and that's when you lead others. And if, if you want my opinion on leadership, leadership is the ability to get results. And in personal leadership, it's the ability to get results in your own life. It's mm -hmm. the ability to get the love of your life. It's the ability to get a job and stay employed. It's the ability to earn the type of money that you want. It's the ability to get the body that you want. It's the ability to get the health that you want. And leadership is just that. It's the ability to get results. And personal leadership is in your own life. What would you say would be the one or two big blocks that people have as a generalization about that personal leadership? Is it like the fear of rejection? Is it them being too overly critical on themselves? Or is it, how do you release the brakes and kind of, just go with it. Just just get going with it in your life. I feel like so many people seem to be blocked and it's like, you're not, you're good. Just just keep going. You're all right. You know, they just all self-imposed. What, what would you say one or two things that they could do? Well, I, I think it comes back into the go all in formula. First <laughs> of all, it's knowing what you want. What do you want? And most people, they don't know what they want. 
And so you've got to figure out what you want. And we call this a major definite purpose. What is that one thing that you want more than anything else in your life? Just one thing. You know, there's, there's a billion things you can do, but people still can't figure it out. So you've got to make the decision. And your first goal is to decide what you want. The second thing is to decide what price you're willing to pay. And there's a lot of people who want to be a self-made millionaire, but the reality of becoming a self-made millionaire is that you're going to have to get close to bankruptcy 2.4 times. You're going to have to work an average of 60 hours a week for the next 20 years. And that's the price that you need to pay. So if you want to be a self-made millionaire and you're prepared to get close to bankruptcy 2.4 times to work 60 hours a week for 20 years, go all in and that's all you need to do. And then learn what you need to learn because you can learn anything you need to learn to become anybody that you want to become. It's that simple. Very nice. Very nice. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. Well, as we, uh, as we come towards the end of the podcast here, I, I don't do this often, but I want to ask the typical podcasting couple of questions here. And if I met you, Daniel, 12 months ago, how would you have been different? How would it have been different 12 months ago? Gee, that's a good question. Um, well, my emotional intelligence wouldn't have been as high as it is today. I wouldn't have known myself as well as I know myself today. I could say that would be a fact. Mm. Absolutely. Nice, nice. And what's happening for you in the next 18 months? What sort of goals have you got on your horizon? So business is going really well. I know you're coming back to Australia to open some offices here and things are happening like that. That must be an exciting time. Is that, is that the focus of uh, the next 18 months for you? Well, over the past few years of living as, as an ex, expatriate, I've acquired 3,500 clients into my consulting business mm-hmm. and I want to continue to grow that. Uh, on the short-term horizon, myself and Brian Tracy are in the middle of authoring a book together. So that's going to come out before Christmas this year. And then by the first or second quarter of 2020, I'll be back in Australia. And really my end goal is to train a million people uh, to make more sales and more money. And we're going to start in Australia and I want Aussies to become rich. I want Aussie parents to be able to have the freedom of choice to give their children the best education, to give their children not the old beat-up first car but a beautiful, safe car for their first car. Mm. And I want them to be able to have financial independence. And what that means is that they never have to worry about money ever again because they get their skill level to such a high level that they can go out and they can write their own paycheck. Mm. And that's what we want in the short, medium and long term. And uh, I'm, I'm getting greyer and I'm looking forward to going grey and getting more wrinkles because that just says that I'm more weathered and I've got more experience. So I'm looking forward to growing old in Australia. Also. Very nice. Very nice. Well, the Australian sun will do that to you. You might notice if you're watching this video that all of my grey hair is gone. And that turns out the barber is a miracle worker. He just comes up with a number one and that's completely gone. So it's a little bit in my beard still though. I've got to fix that. So well, it sounds like some exciting times ahead. I can't let you go from the goal in podcast without putting you in the hot seat for a little okay. while. Just a couple of quick questions and having a bit of fun here with you. It's a bit random, no particular order. Just tell me the, the first thing that, that comes to mind. Maybe we'll even kind of maybe get to know you a little bit more. Here it is. First question, you've, you've been to more than 100 countries and you've traveled the world. Do you have a favorite destination that you like to visit with your family? Yeah, I love Dubai. I, I love Dubai. Um, it's a beautiful place. It, it's, it's hot. And uh, like Lawrence of Arabia says about the desert, it's clean. <laughs> <laughs> that it is. I, I was, uh, last time I was in Dubai was last year. 
but just in the airport, just on, on a stop through. But the time before that was when I was in the Navy and it was in 1996 and it wasn't like it is today. It was like, like I, I was looking the other day at some photos from there actually. And I think we were in one of the first high rise buildings and we went up there and took a photo from it and it's just flat, just desert, absolutely nothing there. When you go there now, is it like the future? Is that what the future is supposed to look like? Well, it's the future in one main strip. <laughs> it's not that big, is it? It's not as big as what people think. It's so small. You know, Taiwan's small. Um, you know, we have 24,000 people per square kilometre in comparison to Australia who has about, uh, I think it was 400 per square kilometre. <laughs> in, in Dubai, it's really, it's one main strip and then you have a couple of roads off that and that's it. It's tiny. There's about 8 million people in the entire UAE. So it, it is small, but what they've done is they've marketed it well so you feel that it's massive. Mm-hmm. And what's the favourite part of Dubai? Is it what the people, the shopping, the environment, what's, and it's clean, obviously. What's your favourite part of it? Well, this is, this is probably a little bit controversial, is that in a country like Dubai, everything is a privilege. So a job is a privilege, it's not a right. And as an expatriate, what happens is you go to Dubai and you're given a job and you work work and work. And when you stop adding value to the country, then you're encouraged to leave. Right. One of the challenges with Australia is everything's a right. It's my right not to work. It's my right to get social security and I'm going to bludge. (laughs) There's so many rights in Australia that what happens is we come a little bit soft and we call this in Taiwan, the strawberry generation. Mm. And what happens with a strawberry, you touch it and it bruises. So the thing I love about Dubai is everything is a privilege. There is no rights. You can't claim a stake of land there. You can't get the passport. Your job is to go there and add value. And if you add value, you will get rewarded phenomenally. And I'd love to see more of that mentality in Australia. And this is why people know Dubai around the world because it's grown so fast because everybody adds value. You can't slack off in that country. And if you do, they reward you with a free trip home. Congratulations. You get to go home today. You're out of here. See you, Chip. <laughs> no scabbing off the UAE economy. No scabs. It's against the law. <laughs> love it. I love it. All right. This is a, a question that when I looked at your website and I'd done the research for this interview and I watched some videos and whatnot, and I was like, what on earth does this guy read? Who You're a prolific reader, but do you have like a favorite author? Is it, is it always learning that you're doing or do you ever sit down and read like a, a fiction book? Or is it always non-fiction? Uh, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never waste my time on a fiction book. Oh, really? It, it's about business. And, and the reason is um, what I used to do, Rob, was I'd read on everything. And what I felt, I was, a, I, was a, uh, I was a generalist and had this breadth of knowledge, but there was no depth. So what I've decided in my life is that if there's a topic of emotional intelligence and it's a credible author, I will read those books. If it's social intelligence, I'll read the books. If it's selling, I'll read those books. If it's about sales, I'll read those books and I'll attend those courses. And I've made a decision in my life that I only read things that are in alignment with my business. And I'm a specialist in emotional intelligence and business growth. Everything outside of that can wait till I'm retired. (laughs) That's never happening. (laughs) Never. (laughs) This lifetime. Is there one book that stands out that you would say, hey, if you haven't read this, you should read this one? Look, I, I think to get everybody on the journey, there's a great book called The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Mm-hmm. And I think if, you, if you're lost, if you're looking for your path in life, get The Alchemist. It's a phenomenal book. It's easy to read. It'll take you a couple of hours, but it'll really you know, start to you know, stoke up that fire within yourself. 
And just start there. And then I think the best book that you should buy is the, is the top selling book in the field that you want to lead. So find out who the top author is in the field that you want to read, lead in and read everything that they write. It's like myself with Brian Tracy. He's my business partner. He's my mentor. I've studied every one of his books for the past 20 years. That's a lot of books. It's a lot. There's 75 (laughs) in three of his courses. And I just study that because I look at him and I say, he's got the results that I want. And if I just do what successful people do in a short period of time, I will get the same results as the expert. And that's where I focus my energies. It's just, you know, coming back to the Navy mentality, it's discipline. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Well said. Well said. All right. Is there a, is there a skill in your life that you haven't yet mastered? Is that <laughs> probably to stop working? Um, <laughs> one of the things that I find very hard, although I teach time management, is I love what I do. And I'm willing to outwork anybody to be the best in my field. And I find it very hard to stop. My uh, wife has to tell me when to come home from work. She says, Daniel, it's two o'clock in the morning. You need to come to bed. Get here. (laughs) Four o'clock in the morning, she'll say, you're still not in bed. I said, there's just another chapter to go. So I I will work 22 hours a day just to win and beat the bastards. (laughs) I'm all in. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. My brother says uh, we've had a business together for a long time. His missus is the same, like, get home. What are you doing? You know, you're never here with the kids. And he's like, yeah, I'm I'm at work. And she's like, don't you ever want to have a break? Don't you ever want to go and do something fun? And and he uses the Grant Cardone response is that don't you realize that I'm never more happy than when I'm at work? You don't don't realize because he just loves what he does, right? And it sounds like the same for you. Yeah. If, if, if you meet me and I'm working, you'll see me at my best. But what happens is if I'm not allowed to work, and it's not even work, it's just my life's purpose. Why would I want to take time off from, from my life? I feel like if I'm not doing something related to my passion, I feel like a greyhound mm. in the box. And I just keep seeing that rabbit run past and I can't get out of the box. <laughs> and this is my life's purpose and I don't want a day off. Uh, I will create my life around what I want and my family will come on the journey with me. And like what my dad taught me was just to work. My dad's 74. He still works, not because he needs to, because he loves to. Yeah, nice. And I want to be that same 77. I, I want to live to 100, by the way. And I'd love to have these conversations when we're 100. And that's just, <laughs> I think if you've got to have time off, Rob, you don't like what you do. Yeah. Yeah, agree, uh, agree. Yeah, for me, it's I'm, I'm not really a big fan of a work-life balance. I just think there's life. And if you need a work-life balance, you're probably not doing what you want to do with your work because it's not your life. And it's not that work is life. It's just got to be something that you're kind of excited about and and you want to jump in and do. All right, what's the last question here for the hot seat quiz? What's the best piece of business advice that you've ever received? (laughs) The best piece of business advice uh, would, would have come from Brian Tracy. And he says that, he said, Daniel, you can learn anything you need to learn to become anybody that you want to become. Beautiful. And I know it's true in my life. And what got you to where you are today is only enough to keep you there for a short period of time. So your job is to learn everything that you can learn. Now, there's been 3 million books written every year in English alone. <laughs> so what you've got to realize is that your knowledge becomes redundant every, by 50% every two and a half years. So you have to keep learning. In life today, there's no such thing as lifelong employment. It's mm. lifelong employability. So the, the best advice is you can learn anything you need to learn to become anybody that you want to become. So just keep learning. 
I love it. I love it. I'm going to borrow that one. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Daniel. I'll, uh, I'll borrow that one. That's going to go to like as a little thing. Am I going to stick that on my daughter's wall? Great artists don't borrow, they steal. I'm going to steal. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for com- coming on the Goal In podcast and spending an hour or so with us here. Really appreciate it. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, go to Facebook uh, and type in Daniel Tolson and you'll find me there. Uh, and second to that, go to my website, www.danieltolson.com. On the 1st of August, I'll be releasing a new book called uh, Fear of Rejection. And uh, there's three proven ideas on how you can conquer the fear of rejection. And every month, uh, my goal is to write a book every month. And I've already got eight being written at the moment, plus the one I'm writing with Brian Tracy. So there's going to be another nine coming out. So stay to my website. Look, they're free. I want to give you great information. Go there, put your name in, put your email address in, get the free book, read it. And like you said before, it's like the 12 pillars. Just apply one of these ideas every day and you'll grow. Beautiful. Well said, well said. And if you're listening to this podcast on your phone, just have a little peek at your phone and you'll see all the links to Daniel's website and to his socials uh, right there. So make sure you connect with him, jump inside of his ecosystem and make sure you opt into his email list as well. And if you're watching this video on Facebook or YouTube, just scroll down and you'll see the links right there to his website and his socials are right there in the show notes as well well as we wrap it up here daniel have you got a parting comment for us mate you become what you think about most of the time so your job is to decide what you want and think about that major dominant purpose every single day and then just decide uh, the price that you're willing to pay and if you know what you want and you're willing to do whatever it takes you will have what you want guaranteed i love it thanks again for coming on the goal in podcast we look forward to speaking with you soon it's bye for now Thanks, Rob. Ciao for now. Well, there you have it, folks. What a show. I love how Daniel added the word personal in front of the word leadership. I'm sure that you'll agree that nothing is more important to personal leadership than emotional and social intelligence. Please make sure you connect with Daniel. Just take a peek at your phone if you're listening to this show on your phone and all the links to his socials and his website are right there. Make sure you get inside of his ecosystem and connect with him as he's got incredible content and he's really, really well connected as well. And as you're looking there, you'll notice that Daniel has a little giveaway for you there as well. So make sure you pop on over and pick that up as well and take a look at his YouTube channel. He's got some really, really fantastic interviews on there himself and he's got some great content that's all freely available to you. So make sure you check that out. Okay, if you've got a question or a comment for the show, you can reach out via the GoAllIn socials and if you want to send me an email, just visit goallin.com.au for more info there. And if you like what you heard here today, please take a minute to leave a review as that helps us out a whole boatload as well. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you'll always have some go all in motivation and entertainment right at your fingertips and in your ears whenever you need it. Well, that wraps it up for the show today. So whatever it is that you're working on, whatever you're doing, get busy, get to it and go all in. I'll see you next time. Before, but you always stop at my door. Yeah, maybe we'll fight about it, but I won't be down about it. Oh.
子。